My name is Candy Chambers with Direct Employers Association, and I would like to welcome you to our fourth episode of the DE Talk podcast. When looking back at 2019, we can easily say it's been a busy year for the OFCCP. New directives, pending regulatory issues, and significant events are coming in 2020, and you need to be prepared for what's coming. This is why I sat down with employment law expert John C. Fox of Fox Wang & Morgan to discuss all of this and more. Today we will be giving you an x-ray of what counts and we will blend our knowledge from a practitioner standpoint with John's encyclopedic legal knowledge of everything OFCCP so you can position your company for successful compliance in 2020. While compliance can certainly be a dry topic, hopefully we'll bring a fresh perspective and of course some comedic banter. And with that, I'd like to introduce John Fox, and I'm going to put him up first for some questions and comments about what we can expect in 2020. Well, Candy, I'm delighted to be here, and I think uh, the theme for 2020 continues to be what we saw pretty much in 2019, which is that OSCCP will continue to be haunted by its past. Specifically, uh, I think most people are aware that there are several thousand old audits, some of them going back to the end of the Bush, the Sun administration, but many from the early years uh, even of the Obama administration, 210, 211, 212. And cleaning up that past uh, remains a major priority. And indeed, I might say that at the National Industrial Liaison Group meeting in Milwaukee this past summer, where I polled the 800 people in that audience, about their most important concerns about OSCCP, this was the number one concern, that uh, these old audits are still there dogging us. And we'll talk uh, a little bit about uh, what uh, the future holds there, but it's a three-year dig out still lying ahead of us. It's not over this year as OSCCP had hoped. Well, you bring up a really interesting point, but they sent out 3,500 CSALs, corporate step, or not, they didn't send out the, I, I'm still in the, the CSAL being a letter, um, but it's corporate scheduling announcement list now where they don't actually notify the recipient, but they put a list out on their website, but they uh, sent or, or advertised a 3,500 establishment CSAL, and they're going to do that again in the, in the spring. So what's up with that? So you have to pay attention to the difference between starts of an audit and completions of an audit. And what's happening is that they're starting very, very few audits, relatively speaking, from that March 25th, 2019 CECL list, which uh, had 3,500 uh, corporate uh, establishments listed on it. Uh, they've probably done not more than seven or 800 of those and uh, almost 400 of those are going to be Section 503-focused reviews, uh, of which there are a total of 500 in that 3,500 uh, establishment batch from March of 2019. So what you're seeing is uh, a lot of closures right now. In fact, uh, Craig Lean, the director of OSCCP, has doubled the number of closures of audits from the same time last year when they were looking at their 2018 results. So they're closing a lot, but it's all this leftover dead wood from the uh, Bush administration and the Obama administration. Uh, 
But my point to you is, uh, Candy, that there's still a whole lot more. In fact, uh, Craig Lean had hoped that this would be the year they would retire all of these old cases that uh, they, they call aged, A-G-E-D, cases. So, uh, but the reality is they are still working on the four-year-old or older and are going to spend the next two years at least cleaning up the three years old and older and the two years old and older. So you brought up a really important point. The OFCCP has been very aggressive in getting a lot of regulations out, a lot of directives, a lot of ideas, um, opinion letters. Wow, when have we seen opinion letters? But I know we're going to try and focus on 2020. But coming up in 2020 are the VEVRA-focused reviews and more completion of the Section 503-focused reviews. But there is a big election in November, and there's less than a year before the election takes place. And especially with the news of the day right now, um, who knows what's going to happen moving forward? And how likely do you think it's going to be that the OFCCP is going to get anything accomplished? Well, there's going to be two different levels of accomplishment, if you will. One is the non-political day in and day out work of the agency. They've got to start audits. They've got to close audits. Uh, but the other issues are the politically charged or politically controversial issues, like rulemaking and the religious uh, exemption. Uh, That's to, one to thing I wanted to ask you about, too, so go on. <laughs> but uh, what happens in every election year previously for a presidential election is that at some point the White House, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, shuts down all of the executive branch agencies so that they don't influence the election by doing something that's controversial stupid. and going to, yeah, <laughs> stupid, that's going to uh, impact adversely uh, some constituent group that might vote for the president. So we'll have to watch with interest whether this president, who is so different from so many predecessor yes. <laughs> uh, uh, presidents, is immune to that and just keeps steaming on with uh, his agenda, or whether there comes a point perhaps in uh, the uh, early uh, June, July period, which is where we normally see the agencies shutting down. You see directors of agencies not being able to say anything on the public record. At my annual Nelly National Employment Law Institute conference, which I've held for 38 years in October, with the OOCCP director uh, as the first speaker of that two-day conference typically, I have a hard time in presidential election years because they either are not authorized to speak at all, or if they are authorized to speak, they're it's given a White House script yeah. that says nothing. And uh, you, you wonder why you even invited them to speak. So we'll have to see what happens next year, because this year we had such, such success with Craig Lean doing our fireside chat type phenomenon, and it was highly successful wonder what will happen in October of Well, we'll just have to see if uh, they continue to defy gravity at the White yeah. House, as they have been doing. They just haven't been very concerned about what the press thinks or doesn't yeah. think. So maybe they'll just uh, keep going. But in the meantime, uh, doing the day-in and day-out activity of the agency, here's the game plan that is unfolding. But I think it's subject to amendment uh, on the fly because there is still uh, a lot of uh, dead wood to, to clear here. They are expecting to finish all of the four-year-old or older audits this calendar year, 2019. They're behind on those. They had wanted to close them by the end of the fiscal year, September 30th of 2019. 
uh, Craig Lean extended that for a month to the end of October, but they still have a very large number of four-year old or older audits pending. So basically our listeners who are government contractors have to just be patient yet again. That's and if I were uh, uh, sitting on some four-year old or older audits, as uh, a number of my clients are, uh, we're pushing forward to uh, bring this to, to administratively uh, close the them, national right? office's yeah. attention and get some resources on it to close them. Because at this point, a district director has three choices, uh, given what uh, Director Lean has said. They either need to administratively close the audit, or uh, they need to sign a conciliation agreement with the contractor if they think there's a problem, or they need to fold up their tent and make a recommendation to the solicitor's office to file a complaint uh, to seek enforcement against the contractor who they think is violating one or more of their, their statutes. Well, and I think it's really difficult having been in that, that position you know, when you sit there as a government contractor and you hear nothing from the OFCCP for three or four or five, we had a, an audit with a nuclear power plant at one of my previous employers and we didn't hear anything from them for probably seven years. And it's hard to understand why, if there's a burning issue, why all of a sudden, why it took so long to make any big deal of it. So I think a lot of them are having them administratively closed. I think the benefit though of getting them administratively closed before the end of September when the OFCCP's fiscal year ended was much more likely now that we're mid-year, going to be mid-year very we soon. We saw a big surge in exactly. uh, August, September. It's abated now, but they're exactly. still closing some, but very slowly and not getting to Nirvana. They're not getting to the goal line oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that uh, Craig had thrown down in a very reasonable, uh, not generous uh, deadline, given that many of these audits are uh, six, seven, eight years <laughs> old. Uh, what else do you uh, you need? You need to get on it. Uh, By the way, that nuclear power plant audit closed beautifully with <laughs> with no conciliation. I just want to throw that out there. But you know what? Let's get on into 2020. One of the things that he started talking about, and it took you and I by a huge surprise uh, when we were at the OFCCP for, for the Nelly um, presentation with Craig. And he threw out something that I think we both just, you know, had, had wide-eyed um, looks at, at him, and that was the inclusion of military spouses in the VEVRA focused reviews. And I think you and I, and God knows you've <laughs> been working with the OFCCP for a very long time, and I was dumbfounded by that, and I think you were too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, my, and I my, said, my jaw dropped, and I <laughs> immediately asked him, well, wait a minute, Craig, what are you saying? Are you saying that um, military spouses are protected, protected by, by Vevra? Vevra? And he shot back immediately of with course. no sin of Of course, yes. I thought it was very interesting, John. Do you remember when he said, well, that's what my legal is telling me? Yes. So it's coming from the solicitor's office, right. obviously. Right. So that so surprised me. Let's unpack this a little bit, though, because uh, VEVRA, the Vietnam Era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act of 1974, uh, and OCCP's regulations do not protect anybody but protected veterans. Uh, well, but they they're talking about the relationship clause. So what they're doing is that they are, and it's in their regs, uh, as you suggest, there's a relationship non-discrimination component to those 2014 regs that went to final that says if you discriminate against somebody because of they're in a relationship with a protected veteran, that that's unlawful. 
This was something they borrowed from the ADA in 1990, which prohibited relationship discrimination. So if you are the personal assistant uh, pushing uh, somebody's wheelchair and uh, you apply for work somewhere and uh, they're concerned that you're going to be too distracted at work because you're going to be subject to going to assist this other person because of their disability that may cause them to uh, take on more need on any particular day, that would be unlawful discrimination. But here, what they've been uh, saying is just a flat-out prohibition on not hiring uh, a, uh, a spouse of a uh, active-duty uh, service member. Now, I'm about the most sympathetic uh, person uh, on the planet to this issue, I would think. I was a military brat. And, uh, brat I saw, is, there's no pun intended with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I saw, I, I grew up in 17 states and two continents before the age of 17 and saw my mother struggle in every location we moved to around the country and out of country trying to find a job that was going to last between two and six months at best. And uh, that problem has not abated. It's uh, still a, a, a challenge. The only thing that has really helped military spouses so far, by the way, is uh, working via remote. That has been a real boon to military spouses. And I know a lot of military spouses uh, who uh, have been able to work full time because they're uh, online uh, or they're on the telephone. So there's a, a good point uh, to all of our government contractor listeners, I get the question a lot from our members about adding military spouses to our to their veteran self-identification. And you can do just about anything you want with a veteran self-ID. You cannot with Section 503, but with veteran self-ID, you can add Vietnam-era veterans. You can add whatever you really want. But I would strongly recommend that you do not include military spouses. It's one of those things that if you ask for something, you have to think about what you're going to do with that information. And if you're in, if, if you're in a situation now where they're going to be doing VEVRA-focused reviews, they're going to be looking at your treatment of military spouses, and then they see that you're asking if your, the, your candidates are military spouses and you know that, and you don't hire a person, you're opening yourself up, I, I believe, for unnecessary um, concern on, the, on behalf of the OFCCP. Do you agree? I agree. And I think we ought to note uh, that the VEVRA, excuse me, the VEVRA focused reviews have not yet begun. The scheduling letter that OFCCP has sent to the Office of Management and Budget, uh, that arm of the White House that approves all paperwork of the federal executive agencies, has not yet approved the uh, scheduling letter for the uh, VEVRA audits, for the, all of which are going to be focus reviews. We understand from uh, a September supplement to the March 2019 CECL that there will be 500 of these in 2020 to start whenever the uh, uh, audit scheduling letter is approved. Now, something is hung up there. It's not getting done. It's way overdue. They had wanted to launch this on Veterans Day, as you might imagine, and very appropriate. <laughs> but that's come and gone, and now it's, you know, two months in the rearview mirror at this point, and they still don't have that approved. So there's a hang-up there. But when they do start, uh, they are going to check in on this uh, uh, spouse issue. And so uh, the admonition I would give to everybody is to train your recruiters as to how to answer the question about whether they uh, hire uh, military spouses. 
uh, what uh, many of them might confuse is their reluctance to hire somebody who is a part-time or short-time uh, employee of, as opposed to hire, refusing to hire somebody who is a military spouse. Uh, those are two different things. Well, I think the one thing that the OFCCP does not understand is that if an organization does not have remote, uh, I can talk, remote work capabilities and the military spouse that they may or may not hire cannot take that job and go around the country or the world and still do that job, if they don't have that opportunity in that company, then the cost of turnover is outrageous. It's more than than just the cost of hiring. So, I mean, they, they have the recruiting all over again, the, the hiring cost, the training costs, which are incredibly expensive. So the OFCCP needs to understand that not every company can bring in a person that can only work two to six months, for instance. But here's something that a lot of these And I'm all about hiring military spouses. I don't want to go on record that I'm not, but sure. that's a concern. A lot of HR managers forget, however, when they say, well, we don't want to hire somebody who's only going to be here for two or three months, that their average turnover rate may be less than that. They may have somebody, they, their workforce may only be there for two months. If you're uh, at a fast food restaurant or a 7-Eleven, uh, their turnover is 400% a year on average, uh, but certainly 300%. I mean, you're turning over every four months right, anyway. I'm, I'm talking about a long-term professional organization where they they want a career right. for instance so anyway um let me let me move forward we we have a brand new person at the OFCCP and he is the new ombudsman and I've met Marcus Sturgio on a couple of occasions seems like a great guy and I know he's going to be putting together I guess a tag or or something um a trans transition assistance guide kind of a, a guide guideline or, or whatever to let people know how to interact with the ombudsman. But I think we still always have to remember he's a, he's a, an employee of the OFCCP. So what is your take on, on Marcus and, and that role? Not Marcus, but the role. The, the role is a relatively new one for the agency. They've tried this ombud approach a couple of times before. It hasn't lasted physically very long, a couple of months, and it hasn't been defined. So Marcus is going to have the opportunity, indeed the requirement, to really lay down a channel that uh, contractors understand and feel comfortable to enter to deal with problems in audits uh, and bypass the district director and or the regional uh, director and deal with him instead of dealing direct with the, uh, the, the field staff of OSCCP. And I think that's going to be very dicey. He's expecting to publish this month, actually, a very large document, as you suggest, Candy. Uh, we don't know if it'll take the form of a technical assistance guide, a tag, as you mentioned, or whether it'll be just a, a white paper explaining how to engage his services uh, and uh, get a resolution in a comfortable, graceful way. But uh, when that comes out, a lot of people will be reading that with great interest to see how they can use the mediator without sacrificing the years and years of investment that many uh, professionals in the affirmative action area have building relationships with the district directors and the regional directors. For uh, companies that are new to government contracting, 
for employees of those companies or their vendors or their counsel who do not have relationships with the OCCP uh, investigators, uh, they may be more prone to use uh, the Ombud program. But I don't know that I expect a lot of uh, people who have uh, deep and long relationships with uh, the investigators to uh, go around them and sacrifice those uh, expensive <laughs> long-term relationships. Oh, yeah. I, I think so. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, I have invited Marcus to the annual meeting for direct employers in, um, or in 2020. And this is he, the one in Fort Worth? Yes, and he is planning on being there. So I think that will be a great opportunity for people to get to know him on a personal basis because you're right, relationships kind of – drive all of the things that you you need and want from the OFCCP and I think it would be good for people to get to know him as well. I, I was very impressed by him so hopefully um, he will have some good um, feedback from some of our members. So I think there's a timing issue there as well. Do you go to Marcus when maybe your matter has percolated not only to the district office, but it's percolated up to the regional office, and indeed it's percolated into the national office, and the enforcement division is looking at this, and uh, then what do you do? Uh, time out, guys. I want to go talk to Marcus. Uh, how, how he relates to not just the field staff, but also the national staff that have their fingers in the enforcement pie is also another puzzle. Well, I think contractors are always nervous about upsetting the compliance officers and, and going over their head. But I was in uh, Detroit last week or two weeks ago uh, for, I guess, last week for um, the American Society of Employers Conference. And Lauren Hicks, who used to be the Indianapolis district director, made the comment that if her compliance officers got things wrong, that she wanted contractors to reach out to her because they need to know if they're, you know, telling the contractor community something inappropriate. And I cited a few situations. I got to just throw this out there, but I had a compliance officer tell me that the listing requirement, which everyone knows is my soapbox, was a requirement for Section 503 and for, for individuals with disabilities. And I said, I beg to differ. And I told her that the regulation, I, of course, could cite it perfectly, but it's part of the VEVRA regulations. And so I'm pretty excited, actually, about the VEVRA focused reviews because that's going to be one of the biggest things they ask for right off the bat. So I'm pretty excited about that. So, <laughs> Well, I think everybody's hoping that this Ombud program will uh, prove valuable. But I think everybody's uh, holding their breath, uh, a little bit skeptical, uh, not sure how, how to use the logistics to will work out here. Yeah, I think you're right. So um, interestingly enough, we just found out right before we came in here today about the new budget that is sitting on President Trump's desk right now. So what do you think about that? It's more money than the OFCCP has seen in a, several years. Well, two things happened here. One, uh, the Senate and the House have rebuffed the White House pretty firmly. Uh, they sent a small message, a small but firm message. OFCCP only wanted its same budget that it had in 2018 and had in 2019 which was $103,476,000. And the Congress... Who remembered that to the, to the dollar, John? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder why you would be remembering oddball numbers like that. I don't know, but I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is the first time in over a decade that the Congress has given OFCCP more money than they asked for. So what do you think they, they're trying to they, tell them? They've given them $105 million <laughs> 
976. So almost 106 million. So two and a half million more. Two and a half million more, which is, uh, you know, in round numbers, a little over 2% more. Not a big deal. What do you think they want them to do? It's a symbol. Uh, it's it's a, 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 a subtle message. Uh, the, the White House had wanted to take down all of the employment uh, agencies, NLRB, EOC, mm-hmm. et cetera, and the, the Congress uh, said no. Uh, but the other thing about this budget is it's a, a Christmas tree budget. Everybody got everything that they wanted, Republicans, Democrats, the White House. Uh, there's a, over a billion dollars in uh, border wall here. Uh, so the White House is ecstatic about that. But the, uh, the budget is very large, and uh, OCCP uh, shared in it. And I'm uh, personally uh, very interested in this because, as you know, I've been saying for 10 years, I thought this agency is too small to continue to manage itself. It needs more budget. It needs more employees to be a proper professional uh, agency. So this is a step in the right direction, and uh, I know that Craig Lean will use the money wisely. Well, they've got the religious exemption sitting out there and the use of PDNs. And the most important one that I see, and one we could probably talk for two hours, don't worry, we won't, about (laughs) um, is the Affirmative Action Plan Verification Project. When I first saw the amount of this budget that is most likely going to be approved by the president, hopefully yet today, so there is not a government shutdown, and interestingly enough, we, we reported on it when Craig had mentioned it at Nelly last year, and then we quickly rescinded that. But now it's out in the open. Everybody's talking about this potential AAP verification. What do you think this money, this additional money, is going to provide to help that move forward? So the AAP verification project is something that Craig has championed very much. And good for him. I think it's a great idea to tell you the truth. For those of you who are not familiar with it, there are 25,000 approximately covered government contractors every year. The number changes a little bit depending on the contracting activity each year, year in and year out. And they typically have somewhere between 175,000 and uh, uh, 200,000 AAP establishments. But the Government Accounting Office in 2016 Uh, projected that there were about 76% of contractors that were not preparing their affirmative action plans at all, and they documented that uh, instead of contractors that had affirmative action plans having them ready to deliver to OCCP within 30 days of receiving the audit scheduling letter, the average intake was 67 days after the audit scheduling letter. So a lot of non-compliance in having the affirmative action plans ready to go. That's not far different, by the way, from what the Carter administration found in 1977 when they estimated that 70 percent, 70 percent of government contractors did not have AAPs properly in place. So the idea has been to find a solution by looking at everybody's AAPs. They quickly realized as they thought through the volume that they were probably going to have to do this over a five-year rolling period and uh, ask 5,000 companies per year to deliver their one, two, or three AAPs, depending on their jurisdictional coverage. But if you do the math, if uh, everybody had three AAPs, uh, you'd be looking at intaking almost 600,000 affirmative action plans. And uh, they didn't have a way to do that. 
uh, other than to do it electronically. Their regs don't require that. So uh, they're going to have to start by amending their regs. Mm -hmm. And then the next part of that that leads to your question, now I've, with that background I can get to it, <laughs> they need a lot of computing power to, and a portal to receive all of that and a lot of security around all of that because this is a lot of paper. Well, and I think when Craig first started talking about this, I think his, his thoughts have, have maybe moved a little bit because I think at first the thought was, do you have an AAP? Then they want to know if it's a complete AAP and then will they use the list of people who did not submit one as a potential audit um, possibility and as we already know because we've already seen it with our introduction of tapestry our affirmative action planning business ourselves we've seen people call and say we need an affirmative action plan and you know a lot of people do that because they don't have affirmative action plans and then they get an audit letter and then they're like oh god we need your help so i think that i i mean i i applaud craig for trying to ensure that every government contractor is meeting their requirements of having that affirmative action plan. But how do you think that they're going to figure out if they're good or not? How do you think they're going to do that? Oh, they're just going to have uh, compliance officers take a look to make sure that the, all the component parts are there without making any judgment about the quality of the submission. Okay. But you and I have been sounding the alarm for uh, over a year now that uh, this issue of verification of your AAPs is coming. The question is mm -hmm. not uh, whether, but simply when. This budget is now a second clarion call to everybody to pay attention if you don't have your AAPs in place Get because they are loading the gun. They've got the budget now that they had requested and more to uh, build the computers out to create that electronic portal. So the next thing that they need to do is to get that regulation proposed and finalized to require electronic submission, mm -hmm. and then they need to get OMB to approve a uh, request letter from OCCP requesting these uh, verification uh, AAP collections to occur. <clears throat> now, if the Democrats take the White House uh, in the presidential election and in January of 2021 are running the show, I think this issue will take on uh, an even more uh, heightened sense of importance of and priority. Yeah. So um, I would think that by the end of 2021, we might see this verification program come to be. Uh, if it does uh, another Trump second term administration, it'll work on whatever the schedule is that the Office of Management Budget dictates as a function of politics and a function of budget and a function of just how many pieces of regulatory approval they can process uh, at any given time because there's a lot going on in this government. Well, they, they actually, um, Craig has also been talking about doing promotion-focused reviews, which will also be something new and different. I, I know just, again, from my own experience as a practitioner, the fights that go on among leaders to define what a promotion is. And the, the attorneys have, you know, a basic legal idea, but the actual interpretation or application in corporate America is totally different. And it's different by division, it's different by department. It's, I mean, it's different across the board. Now, of course, so. contractors have been required since 2000 
to annually undertake promotion disparity analysis. Exactly. I did not say adverse impact analysis. Well, I know. But I said disparity <laughs> That's John analysis. Soapbox, if you ever want to hear him go on and on about that. <laughs> at, at the same time, OSCCP has not, in the last 19 years since that rule went into effect at OSCCP, prosecuted a single contractor for a violation of their disparities in promotion analyses. They do some occasional, uh, depending on the year in question, promotion discrimination claims, one here, two there, but those are on an individual basis, not a systemic basis. So OSCCP has been quite generous, is where I'm going with this, to accept whatever pablum contractors feed them about what a promotion is or what that promotion pool is. But should the promotion focus reviews come to be, contractors are going to have to sit down for the first time in a meaningful way and define what their promotion pools are. They probably should anyway. but <laughs> And then they're going to have to define who is interested in a promotion because uh, you'll find a lot of people are not interested in there, a promotion well, and for a lot lots of, of different reasons. And a lot of people are nitpicked. And and what I, what I used to see a lot of at both of my prior employers were individuals who were paid overtime because of their particular job and then they were would be asked to move into supervisory positions but they would make less money because they would lose their overtime right and they would become an exempt employee and and now with all the wage and hour stuff i mean it, it it's going going to be an interesting um process for the ofccp i believe so yeah we'll uh probably be putting a lot more energy into that in 2020 if and when the promotion focus reviews become a reality. Right now yeah. it's a, a uh, aspiration at OSCCP, but I uh, think it's near and dear to Craig's heart. So oh, yeah. if he's uh, got a second term in him, because remember, his, I know, it's, his clock is winding down. Yep. As a political appointee, you know one thing when you come in, and that is you're leaving. You just don't know when. <laughs> As you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I know um, I was at the legal town hall that Craig put on, and he is adamant for the, the law firms that are government contractors. He's adamant at looking at promotions from the associate ranks to the partnership ranks. And he even tried to push the partnership um focus and you know the partners that were in the office were like were in the in the town hall said well he, he can't do anything with, you know with partners but craig i think has a fight in him and he's a very smart guy so who knows what's coming so well he surprised me a bit too uh in telling me and i don't think i'm telling any stories out of school i, I think uh he would probably uh approve of me relating that uh, he worked in big law firms, and he thought there was a lot of discrimination in those law firms in uh, his, his point of view, what, what he uh, observed and uh, was concerned about. So I, th I think uh, having been a partner in the third largest law firm at, at one point, and uh, I think the second largest uh, firm in Northern California for many years, and uh, voted on partnership selection and uh, spent a lot of time grooming uh, associates to become partners. I can tell you it is a very complex formula, There is, and there's not one formula. Every law firm is different. They have and their own different culture and their own different uh, major elements that are important to them, and it changes over time. 
Um, well, and if you last year I needed a mergers and acquisitions partner. This year I need a IP litigator. Uh, the, the marketplace interjects and uh, mm -hmm. influences this uh, well, quite a and, bit too. And if you read the news on a daily basis, there's one discrimination or, or lawsuit on discrimination every day at a different law firm and some of the biggest name law firms in the country today. And I mean, Jones Day and I mean, you, you just hear them constantly where they're being sued by females that don't believe that they've been treated fairly. So anyway, I think all of you that have heard John and I speak before have could could tell that we could go on just talking about compliance for probably the entire day. I really can think of a whole lot more fun things to do. <laughs> Not sure John could, but but Please stay uh, in tune for things that are coming up in 2020. So, John, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. You know, we, we jokingly refer to you as a walking search engine. Um, we, we joked around about we don't need Google. We just, we just need John Fox. So You're the one that remembered $103,476,000 in OCCP's I don't know how budget I, last year. I don't, I don't know where that came from. but Well, that's great trivia. Take that to a cocktail party. Okay, yeah. Everybody would <laughs> love to hear that. <laughs> anyway, John, we're really thankful for your knowledge and, and your insight into what's to come into 2020. With next year being an election year, we're definitely going to encounter some surprises along the way. And if you want additional insights from John each week, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to our OFCCP Week in Review by visiting directemployers.org slash subscribe. Or you can also send the word compliance to, uh, and, and you can text the word compliance to 55678 if you'd like it via text. It's not a sales opportunity for us. It's truly just information sharing. We don't do anything with your contact information. I can't believe how many people read it. And I just get, I got some content thing that people out of the United States, outside of the United States are reading it. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it's across the world. Um, but this weekly blog is, is filled with updates on all things related to OFCCP compliance. And we're actually broadening now sometimes to wage an hour and EEOC and, and other um, governmental agencies as well and it does come out monday at 3 p.m eastern standard time without interruption except unless or uh, unless it would happen to fall on a on a specific holiday but then it's the next day and as always if you're a member of direct employers don't hesitate to reach out with your with your questions by emailing compliance at directemployers.org or crowdsourcing information from your peers in the DE Connect community by visiting connect.directemployers.org. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the DE Talk podcast. With so many great topics to cover, be sure to follow Direct Employers on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember to subscribe, rate, and review the DE Talk podcast to be sure that you're the first to receive notifications of new episodes available each month. Thanks again for listening and look to have you join us in the future. Thank you.